In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, Cami here. In today's episode of Money Tales, We'll hear stories from a man who boomeranged from his Midwestern steel town values to flirtations with bright, shiny objects and back to the values that drive him. Our guest, Lewis Roden, is an organizational development, human capital, and brand communication specialist. His career has spanned time in the U.S. military, a dot-com in the 1990s, and several roles in the hospitality industry. Sandy here. Lewis is an honest storyteller, and we think you'll enjoy the tales he tells, including one about buying a ridiculously expensive watch that he didn't need and was certain would become a treasured family heirloom. As you'll hear, life unfolded a little differently than that. During this conversation, Lewis also mentions his participation in a deferred compensation plan during his dot-com stint. In our financial insight at the end of this episode, we shine a light on deferred comp plans and the nuances of optimizing them. But first, please enjoy this conversation with Lewis Roden. Hello, Lewis Roden. Welcome to Money Tales. This is Cami Doder. I'm here with Sandy Brager, and we're really excited to have a conversation with you today. If you could give us a little recap of your journey to this moment, maybe one, two, three pivotal moments. I'll fast forward through the beginning. Grew up in the Midwest, grew up in Ohio, the son of immigrant parents. My father's from UK and my mother is from Sicily. And they immigrated to the United States and they wanted to, of course, live the classic American dream. So they ended up in Cleveland, Ohio. A bit odd having a British father and an Italian mother, <laughs> but it was a great journey. My brother and I grew up in Ohio, went to high school in Ohio, and we all wanted to leave, we wanted to go out and do different things. So my father was a disabled veteran, so had some smaller jobs when we grew up, but always struggled with employment. I think because of his disability, my father lost his eye during the Second World War. So, and back then there wasn't Americans with Disabilities Act and things like that. So he didn't get a lot of opportunity. And my mom was, well, they called them secretaries then, but she was an admin assistant for a hospital. So, but growing up in the Midwest, we had everything we thought we needed. Well, we did have everything we needed. We had food on the table. We had love in the house. We had great weekends and life was classically simple. I think. But like all parents, you want something more for your kid. My brother joined the military. My brother joined the Navy and moved on. I was fortunate enough to go to school on an RTC scholarship. So went to university, got a poli-sci degree, which I've never used a day in my life. But the whole reason for going to university was really just to get a military commission. I spent several years as an army officer. And that was probably one of the pivotal times because up until that point, everything was provided for me. I had my housing provided, I had my food provided, I had everything provided. 
I even was told what to wear every day. So <laughs> I didn't have a lot of latitude and I really didn't think about money much or didn't think about things like that much. You're more concerned about different things at that point. And I was single at the time and not paying a lot of attention to a lot of those things. And then after deciding to leave the military because I wanted to start a family, and we always said in the army that if they wanted you to have a wife and children, they would issue you a wife and children. <laughs> so when we were about to start a family, I had to choose between being a soldier and being a dad, and I chose dad. And I think it was a great choice to this day. I moved into the civilian world and ended up in training and development for several different companies that we could talk more about that if you'd like at some point. But that's really where I finally started seeing, I think, growth professionally, because I always saw my growth professionally as very linear in the military. The steps were pretty much laid out for you of what you were going to do next and next and next. And then being in the civilian world, there was just all kinds of curveballs and all kinds of different approaches. I never thought I'd end up in human resources or training and development. I just never thought I would. And I did by accident. And I learned quickly that life is a series of these beautiful accidents. I think you miss a lot of chances to do some important things. So I ended up joining a global air freight and ocean freight company and helped it grow from a zero revenue. And through acquisition, we finally hit 1.8 billion in annual revenue. Through acquisition, we had great investors and we acquired domestic transportation companies, international transportation companies. And I was the head of HR and then the chief administration officer for the organization. And we grew it and it was fantastic. A particular global executive search firm snatched me out of geologistics right in the middle of the dot-com blow up. And everybody was getting rich and everybody was throwing money at everything. And I couldn't resist. And I ended up at realestate.com. And I was, again, the head of HR and CEO for them. And a year later, that imploded. So I had all these stock options in Camitania. I had all this. They even brought in wealth management people that said, hey, when your stock options back, uh -oh. here's what you're going to do with all your millions of dollars and all these amazing things. And then the bubble popped and then poof. And that, that was a punch in the face. But luckily, one of the people that I, and it's all about networks and finding people that you know and finding the people that you trust. And a person that I worked with at that organization ended up being with another startup. It was a joint venture called Spectrum EPB, which was a joint venture with J.P. Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo. And it was their online bill payment and presentment platform. So I joined them again as chief administration officer and spent some time there, which was great. And we knew that was a finite amount of time, but we did well financially in that, fin that finite amount of time. And that eventually funded, at the time I was still married, and we wanted to migrate to Southern California. So my former wife's family was in Southern California. So after Spectrum was sold and we took our shares and whatnot and moved on and came to Southern California, then through, again, some series of accidents, I ended up at Starwood Hotels and Resorts. I knew nothing about hospitality, but I knew human resources. It was wonderful being at Starwood. And I was there for a little over eight years. And then the 2008 financial disaster hit. And I was in an the part of Starwood that I played a key part in was organizational capability was the name of the function. And we were all disposable. The first thing companies do is they cut out org development or capability. And I remember in 2008, sitting in my house in San Diego going, now what am I going to do? And I talked to some mentors at the time who were wonderful people in the hospitality world. 
And they said, Lou, now's the time for you to hang out in your own shingle and do your own thing. And I said, you must be crazy. This is, at least at the time, the worst economy since the Great Depression. And there's like, now, now's no better time. Because hotel companies and service-based companies around the world are gutting what you do. They're gutting that capability. And sooner or later, they're going to need what you do, which is leadership training and development, as well as brand identification, guest service, all that kind of great stuff. So I hung on my own shingle. I lived on my severance desperately for that. I had savings and I had 401k and I had all those great investments that I didn't want to touch or do anything with. And clients started to trickle in and then more came in and then more came in. And that was 13 years ago. So now I'm dealing with the latest apocalypse, <laughs> which was, again, hard to deal with because as you both know, most of what we do is in-person training and development or keynote speaking or executive coaching. We're doing more and more of those things online. But I was actually in Wuhan, China in December, working with a resort in Wuhan, or more of a business hotel, but a resort company called Marco Polo Hotel for the first 10 days in December, and then went on to all these other beautiful places, Chongqing, China, which has 28 million people. Most Americans have never heard of it, and it's one and a half times the size of New York City and all these other cities. And then by when I returned in late December, and then January, the virus was reported in Wuhan. And then we saw the rolling thunder. And I saw everything start disappearing in Asia Pacific, and then saw that roll into Europe and saw that roll into North America as well. So it was 2008, kind of all over again, but even more so in that it particularly impacted the hospitality industry and the restaurant industry. And that's the place where I do 85 to 90% of our business. So and yeah, it's been another opportunity to take what I learned in 2008 and apply it again in 2020. So that's how I got here. Thanks for taking us on your journey. It's a long road and I love that life is a series of beautiful accidents. And I love that line that you just shared with us. We're going to step back to start with, there you are in Ohio with your mom and your dad and your brother. And I love that you had everything you needed. How are you at this point learning about money? Well, back then, my dad shared all the typical quotes that parents share. All that, save for a rainy day. If you really want to buy something, son, wait a day and see if you want it as much tomorrow. Because my father, despite his physical struggles, left us with this amazing Steel Town America immigrant work ethic of work as hard as you can and save what you get. And so I worked early on. I had lemonade stands first. I had paper routes after that with the Cleveland newspaper. And then when I was 15 years old, I worked in a little convenience store. And whereas some of my friends had money and they would spend it on a lot of stuff. I think because I saw my parents struggling with money that I wanted to be extra careful with mine. So I remember finally one time even having money saved and we had those little passbook savings account back then where you'd actually go and deposit the money and the bank teller would write in your little book by hand. Yeah, it was like so cool. And they would add a little interest plus. And I remember getting money out because I wanted to buy Christmas gifts for my family. I had to be, I think, maybe 14 because it was still my paper out. And they gave me two $20 bills. And I had realized at that point, I would go collecting on my paper out and get 
the bills were like $3, $5. I don't think I ever held my own $20 bill at that point. And I thought, wow, I've made it. I have two $20 bills at $40. I get to buy Christmas presents for my mom and my dad and anybody else, and my brother, and it's mine. And I get to spend it on anything I want. Now 20 bucks is an overpriced burger in San Diego. But at the time, it just seemed so kind of liberating almost, in that this was my money. I earned it. And if you know anything about Ohio winters, when you get to walk down the middle of the street in two foot snow, and I know that sounds like a classic dad story. I used to walk in snow up to my hips both ways. And, but it was true because the paper kept getting delivered. And I'm not suggesting that means I've led a life of frugality. Sweet Lord, no, I haven't. At least at that moment, I wanted to save as much money as I could. And my parents encouraged it and would share a little money with me when they could. And I always kind of made some attempts to refuse it because I had my own money. So I think that's where it started, that silly little, that simple little passbook savings account and knowing that someday a rainy day would come. So when it was time to buy a car, I bought my own car. And it was a piece of crap, uh, old Ford LTD station wagon that didn't go above 50 miles an hour. But I bought it. I got the pink slip for $250. It was $250. And it pained me to part with that $250. It did. But it was my car. And that was probably my first quote unquote big purchase was that car. But I always held jobs in high school. Then I started lifeguarding and I lifeguarded the public pools and a hotel pool and I caught lawns. And you did whatever you could because my parents didn't give me money. I never asked, really, because I know they didn't have it. And I know there were overheard, not arguments, but hard discussions. My parents never argued about money, but I knew that there were times where if it was a particularly cold winter, the thermostat had to be set on a certain temperature because they had to make sure that they could pay the bill. I think I'm lucky that there were no fights or anything like that about money, but they were always very transparent with us. And they were also very transparent with us saying that whatever we want to do after high school, we've got to help drive that ourselves because even looking at the student loans and all those kinds of things just seemed scary at the time. And that's why I wanted to try extra hard in high school to try to get those scholarships and get those things. It sounds like you learned a lot, mostly through observation with some general guidance from your parents and also from circumstances. Let's move forward to when you decide to leave the Army. You had mentioned in your overview that while you were in the Army, everything was taken care of for you from a consumption standpoint. So what was it like as you focus on the money aspects of leaving the military and going into civilian life needing to be more responsible for your money? It was a train wreck. that come together? I mean, a full-on train wreck. I mean, it was... I forgot everything I just told you (laughs) about what I thought I learned as a 15-year-old because of that time where all of it was kind of there. And even when I talk to people leaving the military now, especially the junior guys that I work with and reminding them, because again, I didn't think about rent. I didn't think about utilities. I didn't know how to sign up for utilities. The electricity just goes off by magic. You just flip the damn switch. And the gas is always in the stove. And look, there were lots of classes and programs and things that you can take when you leave the military to help you with those things. But like anybody in their late 20s, you don't need it. You got it all figured out. So at the beginning, I took on a lot of debt. 
you find out in a hurry that people can't wait to throw credit cards at you. Can't wait. And when you're in your 20s, you can't wait to use them. They can't wait. I was living in Colorado. And so I got an apartment in an area that I didn't need. It was probably too nice. I bought a car that was too expensive in hindsight. At the time, it was cool and I deserved it. And you make up all those stories in your mind. I deserve this. I served my country. I served in the Persian Gulf. I did all that. I should have a convertible Mustang, damn it. And I need a two-bedroom apartment with a loft, even though it's only me. I need all these things. And boy, oh boy, you learn in a hurry. You start getting your paycheck and you start paying your bills. And also, you think you want to plan for the future. And then you realize that all of a sudden, you're kind of living paycheck to paycheck. I know that's a trite phrase, but you realize you're doing, you didn't intend to do it. Nobody goes in and says, oh, I'm just going to spend all this plus and barely make ends meet. Nobody intends to do that. It just kind of happens. And then the sooner you wake up, the better. And I just want to ask, how is it feeling at that point when you're kind of coming to the realization that you've overspent, that your lifestyle is more expensive than you can afford? You go through that classic cycle. You start with denial. You start with, no, it's okay. Everybody does this. It's all fine. And then it really hit me when, because I knew the smart thing to do was to, because all the advice I got from civilian friends was put as much money as you can into your 401k. And so I was doing my like max contribution. And when I looked at that and said, maybe I need to reduce my contribution so I can start making all my ends meet. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's a problem here. And I'm doing things that I don't really, and I'm not saying the pendulum swings the other extreme, but it's like, I've just got to be more prudent because I have to buy my own clothes now and pay my own rent and my own things like that. And even though you know that, I knew I had to pay all those things. I knew those were my responsibility. And it finally made me pause and said, my father always said, don't mortgage your future for today. Always. And he always explained that to me. Don't spend tomorrow's money, spend today's money. And I started to hear him again. And he was still alive then and called him and asked him for advice. And he's like, just stop and dig your way out. And I was lucky to do that because if I would have continued on that trail, it would have probably spelled disaster for me for sure. Are you a dad at this point? You mentioned you left the military. No, oh, at that point? No, I'm not a dad at that point. Not yet. All right. No, that was a tougher story because my wife had miscarried and yeah, I had gotten divorced. So that whole dynamic, that personal dynamic, that's the other kind of personal dynamic where I thought I deserved a lot of shiny things because life I thought had dealt me some of these other problematic things that I think people then, if they feel, not to turn this into a self-help session, but if they feel cheated, then I think they go try to augment that someplace else. Now, I'm lucky that wasn't drugs or alcohol. For me, it was just shiny stuff. I'll tell you a quick story. I took a money I didn't have. So I felt that I deserved this watch because I was at the Cherry Creek Mall in Denver and I saw it in the window in the jewelry store. And I'm like, I never had a decent watch. And the watch I had, I really appreciated. And it was an old Timex watch that my dad gave me. And I never would, I had had it since I was a boy, but that's all I had outside of the watches I had in the military, which were all practical watches. So I deserve this watch. So I walked in and on payments, of course, I bought a Rolex. I bought a two-tone Datejust, 18 karat gold stainless steel 
with a champagne face and gold bagel. And, oh, yeah, $3,500 is what it cost. What year was this, approximately? 1994. 1994, nice. 1994. And the story I made up in my mind is someday I'm going to have a son, and on his 16th birthday, I'm going to give my son this watch. And it's going to be this amazingly poignant moment because I'm going to say, son, I bought this watch with that, with this moment in mind. Again, I couldn't afford it. My payments were about $110 a month over. I probably ended up with interest paying $10,000 for this watch. It was so stupid when I look back at it. It's so ridiculous. But you know what? I kept it the whole time. And wouldn't you know it, when my son Ryan turned 16 and I went and got that watch out of the box because I wore it a little bit back then, but not a lot. And I went to give him that watch and I said, son, your 16th birthday. And I told him this exact same story. And he's like, you know what, dad, I'm really not that into watches. I really don't want it. <laughs> and I'm like, no, oh, no. no, that's not how this story goes. This is this time where you take it and cry and tell me that you're going to give it to your son. And then, of course, it's like, well, dad, it's kind of an old guy's watch and it's really not my style. And I'm like, what the hell? So anyways, it never worked out. But what happened to the watch, Lewis? I still have it. It's in a box. You're right. It's not here. It's at home. I still have it. But And who knows? Maybe someday one of my boys will have kids and maybe they'll be interested. Or maybe maybe they'll get older and they'll get interested. I'm glad I have it now, but it was a dumb thing to do at the time because it was another example of something that I just, I didn't need. I couldn't give it back. It's funny how you look back and you think you don't have any wisdom when you're a kid and you have all the wisdom you need as an adult. And then you look back, it's like, holy moly, some of the lessons that I learned as a 14 and 15 year old, I should have remembered as a 28 and a 29 year old. Simple things around frugality or being nice to people or being kind or building friendships and things like that. So I'll never forget that moment. That was pretty poignant. So I started digging myself out of the hole and luckily it wasn't too deep of a hole, but it was deep enough and got my butt out of the hole and then stopped renting. And I bought a wonderful, they call them cluster homes. It's kind of like a townhouse, but it's not attached. And I bought my first ever home, went through my first ever mortgage process, which was interesting. And that was it. So let's just tell us quickly, when you dug yourself out of the hole, how did that feel? What was going through your mind? Because that's a pretty big deal. That's hard to do. It is very hard to do. And I think what was going through my mind is two things. Don't go backwards again. I think I kept remembering some of those lessons from my mom and dad about, and it's not, again, it wasn't about going to the other extreme and say, all right, I get it. I kept thinking about, look, I'm going to get my personal life back in order because being that age and being divorced was not easy. Having, although my wife miscarried relatively early, it still hit us pretty hard and it led to all this. So I'm like, look, you start getting your ducks in a row emotionally. Because money, I think, is emotional. Finances are emotional. I think a lot of people think they're all numbers, and it is numbers, but it's emotional. Buying that silly watch was emotional. It wasn't a financial decision for me. It was an emotional decision. And trying to get my hands around those emotional elements, I think, and then feeling good. I think when you spend money and you feel good about it, longer than 24 hours. I'm going to spend some money now because I'm going to go back to Ohio and see my family. I'm going to buy a plane ticket and I'm going to take my mom and dad to dinner. I started seeing that all the greatest memories I had with my parents growing up wasn't about them buying me stuff. 
I don't remember the toys on Christmas Day, but I remember Christmas Day because I remember mom and dad and I remember the meals. Sure, I remember ripping open the boxes and having thrilled to see those gifts, but those memories fade to remembering mom's meatballs and singing the Christmas carols and doing all those kinds of things. I know that sounds cheesy. It sounds like a damn Hallmark film, but it's true. So I wanted to take the same approach. I'm going to spend my money now creating memories. I took some small vacations. I went up into the Rocky Mountains and went on some ski trips, but I rented skis when my friends owned skis. Like, why don't you buy your own skis? I'm like, I ski three times a year. Right? I'm not going to buy skis. I tried to think that I'm going to, when I do spend some money, I want to create memories. So in some cases, I found myself buying like really just cheap stuff. I don't want to give you ladies the impression that I'm like super frugal. At the time I wanted to dig out, I would spend money again, but not on hard things, not on stuff, but I would certainly enjoy a night out and a time out. And I enjoyed going back to see my family. So I wanted to travel. I had that travel bug in my heart then. And whereas I wouldn't spend a lot of money on my furniture and I'd go to Goodwill to buy a couch. I'd spend money to go on a trip, to travel and go somewhere. What's your favorite memory of a trip you've taken, you've invested in? I think my first big international trip was to Cairns in Australia. That's where the Great Barrier Reef is. And at the time, I was an avid diver, scuba diver. And the Great Barrier Reef is one of the meccas for scuba diving. And at that point, I had learned how to dive in Lake Erie which was odd because the visibility is one foot in front of your face. That's fantastic. <laughs> and the fish are delicious, but they're horrendously ugly, whether they're walleye or bluegill or whatnot, or, or perch. But going to Australia, that was the first big international trip. And it was a long one all the way to Australia. So it really felt like you were going somewhere. And I was way in the back of the bus, like coach minus, minus, minus. So it felt really, really worth it. And when I got there, though, and got into the water, it just felt amazing. And it was worth every penny. Sitting on the Australian beach and drinking Victoria Bitter, which is the name of their local bad beer, with these local Aussie guys. And I remember then thinking, I need a job where I can travel. I started to get the travel bug a little bit then. And that was in like 94, I think I, think I took that trip, or 95. Tell us about your dot-com experience, because that sounds like a juicy learning opportunity in one's life. It was a tale of two cities. It was heady, and it was electric, and there was money to spend on everything. We had these amazing offices in Atlanta, amazing, that the CEO and founder spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on. I had a desk that I couldn't believe. I had all the money I needed to spend on building my team. Whatever was state-of-the-art then we had, all the stereotypical stuff like the coffee machines and the free snacks and the, all the stuff that a lot of the Googles of the world are probably still doing now, we were doing then and incredible benefit packages. And I got a chance to build all that stuff as the head of HR. So I built all these amazing deferred comp plans for our executives and all these amazing stock option plans. Nothing felt out of reach. I had the biggest base salary I ever had in my life. As far as me working for somebody else, it just seemed too good. And I put on top of that the bonuses and the guaranteed bonuses and the stock options and all these other things. And then I got to turn around and when we were building out the company, offer some of those packages to other people, not as big, but same kind of packages, which feels good. 
it feels good to offer somebody a quarter of a million dollars a year. And this is back in the mid 90s or late 90s. Looking back, it just seemed incredible. Now you're buying shiny stuff. I buy my new Mercedes. I had a beautiful home in Vinings in Atlanta. We moved out of our other home. My kids were little then. I was remarried. They were little then. But I'm like, ah, oh, my kids aren't going to go to public school. My kids are going to go to private school. And because you feel like all that's in play, then with the way it all slowly started to come apart when the dot-com bubble popped and it starts slowly at first and you ignore all the writing on the wall because no, 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 no. This is a fluke and this is just a correction, short-term correction. And we're going to be okay. There's a lot of consumption going on in your life. Was there savings going on as well? <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, I thought because I thought my stock options were my big kick and still put money in the 401k. Although that seemed, God, this is going to sound, well, it's going to sound like it should because my mindset at the time was that just seemed kind of pedestrian at the time. A 401k, I was putting max in a 401k, getting a great match, but because of my salary level and we didn't want the plan to be top heavy, we were in all these deferred comp plans. So we had to be careful with how much we put it in 401k. So some of that saving was still going on. And look, I didn't buy boats and I didn't buy second homes and those things, but I was still forgetting the stuff that I thought I relearned again as a young man because I felt professionally I had made it, that I had reached my apex, not just at the dot-com, but in the company before. Growing geologistics was just amazing. And to have it knock on the door of $2 billion in revenue was just, that was exciting. That was the first time I broke I joined the Century Club and made over $100,000 and then made more and then made more and started approaching that $200 number. And I never would have dreamt any of that possible. Never would have dreamt it. And I thanked the universe every day for it. Then. And I worked hard. We worked all kinds of crazy hours and did whatever it took. And in the dot-com world as well, we weren't on the golf course. I mean, we were working hard. We wanted the company to be successful. Everybody that I worked with that. Fondly, we all worked hard to try to make it work. And even when it started to come apart, we tried hard to make it work. And it was gone. It just disappeared, literally disappeared, evaporated. And I was one of the last man standing <laughs> as the head of HR. And those were just ugly, ugly days. And it's like, well, when looking back, hindsight's always twenty twenty, And we thought we should have saw some of these things coming. And all the dot-coms were in the same boat. Lewis, this has been such a wonderful conversation about money. Thank you so much for having it with us. Our final question for you is, what's your next money conversation going to be? It's inevitably going to be with my kids. We spoil the hell out of them, guys. We really do. And I think I'm not spoiling them because I pass down my iPhone to them when I get a new iPhone. So they have to struggle with their iPhone 10 when I have my iPhone, <laughs> whatever. And I think that's a hardship for them. Isn't that crazy? Because all their friends have, the minute the new tech comes out, boom, they get it. They both have MacBooks. They're set up that they'll never want for anything. And maybe that's the problem. Now, look, they're good kids and they work hard academically. You put my son in the kitchen, the one that's going to CIA, the kid, he's got a gift. But I keep reminding him. Man, I said, if you want to go to the Harvard for food and it's got to get paid for, what are you going to do about it? 
And he went out and I give him props. He went out and he's not academically as strong as his brother, but there's culinary scholarships out there based on your arts, not on your GPA. And he got one from the Trotter Foundation, which is amazing. He got one called Live Moss from Taco Bell of all places. And he went out and bird dogged those things down to help pay for his school, which I think is great. So he gets that things cost money, but they don't fully understand yet. Even what you have to pay for your books, and even when you have to pay for these things and those things, all those things come with a price and you got to work hard. And I think the work ethic is there. I want to make sure that, again, when they're in their early 20s and they're in their first jobs, they understand the importance of doing the simple things right, putting as much money as you can in whatever company you work with, whatever plan they offer, take full advantage. Put it in the 401k or deferred comp or those things. Know that the electric bill and all those things are something that you got to own. That's got to be part of your world. Because I love my boys. I do not want them living in my attic. Will they always have a home? Will they always have a refuge? Yes. But they got to go out and make their own lives. And let's face it, that takes money. And the more they can learn about it early on, the better, I think. Louis, thank you so much for sharing that. I want to hear back how that conversation goes. Sandy and I really appreciate your time with us today. Thanks for your service to this country back when you were military. And thanks for being part of Money Tales. Thank you, Louis. Thank you. Hi, Money Tales listeners. Sandy here with another personal finance insight. During our conversation with Lewis Roden, he mentioned making contributions to a deferred compensation plan during his time at a dot-com back in the late 1990s. Deferred compensation plans are a popular retirement plan offering to executives at many companies. Since deferred compensation plans aren't as widely known as other types of retirement plans, we're going to shine some light on them today. At first glance, deferred compensation plans look a lot like 401k plans. Similar to a 401k, Deferred compensation plan participants decide if and how much of their compensation they'd like to contribute to the plan. That amount gets deferred on a pre-tax basis until it's paid out later on. And like a 401k plan, the employee usually has at least a short menu of investments to choose from when deciding how they'd like to invest the deferred comp balance. The similarities between deferred compensation and 401k plans end here. There are important differences between these two types of plans that participants need to be aware of. The most important difference is that the deferred comp plan is a non-qualified retirement plan. Non-qualified means the plan does not meet criteria that would make it eligible for ERISA. And if ERISA isn't ringing a bell for you, it stands for the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, which is a federal law that protects employees' health care, disability insurance, and certain retirement plans from their employers. Why does this matter? Without ERISA protection, the deferred compensation plan is part of the company's general pool of assets and would be subject to creditors' claims if the company became bankrupt. Said differently, there's absolutely no guarantee that the money an executive defers into the deferred comp plan will be there for them in the future. Some of the other differences between non-qualified deferred comp plans and 401k plans involve when the executive must decide to participate in the plan, when and how often they can change their participation level, and also when and how they make elections for future distributions from the plan. From a big picture perspective, all these decisions need to be made sooner for the deferred compensation plan, 
like in the year prior to when the compensation is actually earned. And there's not much flexibility around changing the elections once they're made. You might be wondering, why would an executive accept the risks and relative inflexibility of a deferred compensation plan? Well, as long as they have a lot of confidence in the employer, and this high confidence level is really key, I can't emphasize it enough, deferred compensation plans can be especially attractive to highly compensated executives. This is because, unlike ERISA plans, there's no compensation cap that limits the amount of contributions the executive may make to a non-qualified deferred compensation plan. And this could mean three big benefits to high earners. One, they can defer a lot more of their compensation on a pre-tax basis to the plan. This allows the executive to take greater advantage of tax-deferred investment compounding within the plan. Second, assuming that they have the capacity to do so from a cash management perspective, the executive may be able to strategically defer enough compensation to the plan to stay in a lower marginal income tax bracket for income that they're not deferring into the plan. So in other words, maybe they can save some tax money here. Third, if the employer matches contributions, the executive will have an opportunity to benefit from that match on an even greater amount of money that the executive is contributing to the plan. Deferred compensation plans can be a powerful component of an executive's overall benefit package. Though, as I've pointed out, they involve many important risks that should be carefully considered in advance of making contributions. Best practice is to make sure you're maximizing your contributions to a qualified plan like a 401k and then consider participating in a non-qualified deferred compensation plan if one is available to you. For more details on this financial insight and other questions you may have, please check out our blog Fathom at Experient.com slash Fathom. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog Fathom, head on over to Experient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.